Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Money Mitch Effect. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, wishing you a happy new year as we're into 2023 with a lot to talk about in the sports world on this podcast. Kent Brown's up first to talk college football, two tremendous semifinal games, the best that that playoff format has ever seen. We discuss and break down Georgia's victory over Ohio State, TCU's triumph over Michigan, preview the title game, talk a little Rose Bowl and Sugar Bowl as well. And then Josh Wynn joins the show to talk NFL. We continue to express our thoughts and prayers to DeMar Hamlin. Want you to keep fighting, kid. Keep fighting. Want to see him back and better than ever. We talk about the NFL Week 18 slate, the playoff picture, and uh, some golf as well. PGA versus Live discussion. Josh is an expert in that field. We break down all the news and notes in the golf world. It's Kent Brown and Josh Wynn on the first episode of the Money Mitch Effect in 2023. Let's start the show. Right now with us on the Money Mitch Effect, back again. It's a new year. Same Ken Brown, I think, but we'll have to check. Kent's on the show uh, to talk college football. Uh, it's been a wild week of bowls, wild month of bowls, really. Ken, thanks for coming back on the program. Yeah, it's always fun to be back. Happy New Year and uh, a crazy new year for those people in Ohio, which had to deal with legalized betting as the kick missed. And apparently some bar in Columbus dropped the balloons at the stroke of midnight and people were angrily stomping on the balloons. So that had to be quite a scene. Oh, boy. Yeah. Did you see, by the way, I know we're going to be covering mostly college football, but some other things as well. Did you see who made the first legalized bet in the state of Ohio? Well, I saw they publicized it as Pete Rose. I find it a little hard to believe he really was the person. Yeah. But whatever... Whatever venue that was, and it makes sense. I mean, that's what Pete Rose is. He's been a gimmick now for <laughs> our entire lifetime, basically. But no. it's funny to do that, I guess. Yeah, definitely not the mobile, you know, mobile app. But in terms of in sport, I mean, in in person, I think yeah, he he's still living the gimmick, as they say. Uh, well, Ken, if this was the end of the fourteen playoff, well, what a way to go out because these were the two best games. I mean, there really isn't much of a debate. It's just kind of highlighted, I think, how. Often these games haven't been competitive. We had two semifinal games back-to-back that were arguably as good as it gets. I mean, I I was stunned to see that both lived up and exceeded the hype, especially as we get into that first one, Michigan-TCU. TCU pulls off the upset, going from 5-7 and to the national title game, and a game that, from start to finish, literally the first drive of the game, was exciting. TCU matching, uh, matching speed with Michigan, exceeding them in that regard, and then really just coming up with big plays down the road. This was an awesome game. Maybe not the cleanest played, but just remarkable stuff from the Horned Frogs. Yeah, and two teams that started the season with other quarterbacks. Michigan rolled out Cade McNamara, who, of course, got them to the playoff last year. And it was pretty evident they were going to let Cade and J.J. McCarthy decide things in the out-of-conference. And I think the goal was to have the sophomore win the job. But McCarthy still had to earn that. Then you have Max Duggan, He starts the year behind Chandler Morris. Morris gets hurt in their opener against Colorado. And now Duggan, who has been the lifer there for the last three or four years, he steps up. So it was interesting to see that where you look at like heading into the year, you had Bryce Young, you had CJ Stroud, even Stetson Bennett, defending champ, but nobody had Max Duggan Hmm. as a potential Heisman finalist and a guy that would get his team to a national title game. You're right. It was sloppy at times. There were pick six turnovers, but it was always fun. And it was just a lot of stuff happening nonstop. As you even <laughs> said, the first drive, opening play, Don Edwards looks like he's streaking for a touchdown. 
gets stopped short of the goal line. Michigan does fourth and goal, tries that their version of that Philly special. But it was 0-0, but there was stuff happening. And then for TCU, every time that Michigan got close, TCU answered quickly. The Quentin Johnson crossing route where he went the distance. Another deep pass to Quentin Johnston. And then you look at Mercado, D. Mercado, the running back. He came in for Kendra Miller. That's a backup mm-hmm. running back that took over that game in many yeah. regards. So as physical as Michigan was all year, Mitch, TCU matched them in that regard on Saturday. And yeah. that's really what won the game. Yeah. Um, just want to point out the last – the last, what, six and a half minutes of the third quarter was when there was 41 points. It was literally just out-of-control touchdowns up and down the field. I think that TCU deserves, Sonny Dykes, Max, the entire team, deserves credit for this win. Before we assess blame and, and you know, you have to have these discussions anytime a favorite loses, I want to be clear that TCU shined in this game, and they deserve to win 100%. That's the beauty of sports is that the better team doesn't always win. Sometimes players make plays. There's a, a correct game plan implemented, all that stuff. But you look at the other side, Kent, and you, gotta, you can't not be disappointed if you're Michigan. If you got to this point, if you came in as a favorite, you handled business, you've won the Big Ten twice in a row, you've got the momentum after beating Ohio State at their home field, and you just don't get it done. I know there were calls that went against them. The touchdown got overturned. The targeting even at the end that could have gotten called. But they called a Philly special instead of being a power football team on that first fourth down play. They get a, a first and goal after an overturned touchdown, and they fumble. And McCarthy played a little sloppy at times. I think that Harbaugh is going to have to wear this one. I don't know if he'll ever come back to coach Michigan. But this is a wasted opportunity for a team that you know was building a lot of momentum. Yeah, and McCarthy's dad has some explaining to do as well, based on the video that was linked on social media. Yeah, it, yeah, it reminded me of a parking guard in, uh, well, this, I think it was an old movie that we like, but anyway, anyway, yeah. Yeah, it was it was one of those games, too, yeah. where if you're Michigan, you've been up all year. Even in the Ohio State game, I know they were briefly down or it was close, but Michigan's played with the lead virtually all season. And in this game, they got down fairly large, in the second quarter where it was 21 to three and then 21 to six, I believe at the half, that's not where Michigan wanted to be. And mentality wise, the Michigan Wolverines were a team that were front runners. You know, they were, a team right. that were up seven were up 14 or at least up a field goal, maybe at the half. And it had it been sloppy, they didn't have to come back from scores ever. And I think that affected them because if you look at their team, they were without Blake Corum, who was an All-American running back. That's a big loss. As good as Donovan Edwards is, he was their one-two punch. He was the change-of-pace guy. Mm-hmm. The receivers were good, but they also made some mistakes. There were definitely some times where you know, the wide receivers dropped some passes, weren't necessarily as effective as you'd hope. And for TCU, I'm with you. You have to give them all the credit. They did win this game. But it would have been interesting to see if Michigan – got up 7 nothing on that opening possession, yeah. how the rest of the game would have played, I think it would have been very different. But instead, you almost feel like you kind of lost two scores there by not getting in. I also don't quite know. I understand you're fourth and goal from the two. You want to show aggressiveness. You're the more talented team. You're favored by a touchdown. But there's nothing wrong with just kicking the field goal on the opening no, drive. I, I agree. I, I just that play in particular was like if you run if they you know, they've been a power football team since Harbaugh tried to implement that, 
if they run up the middle or if they run off tackle and get stuffed, I don't think it's the same momentum swing. Do you, do you also feel like, Kent, in this game, that maybe Harbaugh relied or wanted to rely a little bit too much on McCarthy? I know he had his ups and downs and made some great throws in this game, but it almost felt like he wanted to win that route instead of just you know doing what had got them to the dance. Yeah, I also think to go back to the fourth down play as well, you know, before I go to McCarthy, I think when you look at that, don't call the timeout if you're going to run the trick play. Because the one thing that probably gets said on the sidelines, there's probably some, you know, one of the guys that's the unnamed assistant coaches that aren't even technically an assistant, they probably just tell a few players, hey, guys, just be wary of a trick play here. And yeah. we're like, if there's no timeout, those guys are probably lining up quickly. They're getting set. They're not having coaches speak to them. And they might not be. That might have been a mm-hmm. totally wide open play. Instead, you go to the sideline after a timeout, and you're usually reminded of things like that. But with McCarthy, the biggest thing with him is he's not very effective in terms of the zone read. You watch that, mm-hmm. and I feel like for, for Michigan's sake, he has to get better in that regard. Where with Blake Corum, I think it didn't really matter because Corum just made plays was more physical than a lot of teams linebackers always got those extra few yards Donovan Edwards is more of the guy right now at least on paper he needs that space and then he'll bust through and with JJ McCarthy there's not a ton of running threat for him Uh, he did score a rushing touchdown later in the game but overall he's not a dual threat guy with a great zone read the way Mm -hmm. you would probably want him to be at this stage so I think they probably did rely a little too much on him, but I also think just the style of play that Michigan runs, Mm -hmm. they probably needed him to just drop back more and not be a guy that was faking the zone read and then trying for something quick because that benefited TCU's defense, where I think if you let Michigan's offensive line dictate things and he had three steps and five step drops from shotgun, I think he would have been a little bit more effective. So overall, just the game plan for, for Michigan and the combination of play callers there with Sharon Moore and I, I believe his name is Matt Weiss, the other co-coordinator. Those guys, I thought, probably had about a C-minus game at best. Even though they scored right. 45 points, I think that because the first half was such a letdown, it was constant catch-up. And that's not that's clearly not the way that Michigan wanted to run their offense. Right. also want to give credit to TCU's defense in the red zone. There was a couple plays where they did hold their ground and get to those, you know, fourth downs and cause Michigan to press and settle in ways. So, again, it's crazy. They were they won six games, Kent, eight points or less this year, uh, and they win another one, get to the title game. We'll see what happens when, when they get there. But this was a, uh, a tremendous win that the uh, Horn Frogs and really, you know, using the transfer portal, as Sonny Dyke said, kind of get here. Uh, that leads and us truly, for, yeah. by the way, Mitch, truly the biggest underdog that's ever played in the playoff era for the title. Because when you look at like the talent composite ratings of all of the talent that's on these rosters, it was number two is Georgia, number three is Ohio State, number 12 is Michigan. They all cover that blue ship ratio of over 50% of your roster being at least four or five stars. Mm-hmm. TCU's 32nd. They're, they're not part of that. It's very rare, if ever, that you see a team with that type of talent even make the playoffs, and none of them have won a game. What, yeah, so what, I was going to say Cincinnati. That's the only one I can think of. Were they in that range? Yeah, Cincinnati would have been in that range, but again, they did not <laughs> mm-hmm. then win the game. Yeah. And you even look at Notre Dame, who got in a couple times, Oklahoma, who got in a few times. 
teams like that. They never got over that hump. And now Michigan's very similar, where it's very rare usually teams outside of that top five, top ten get in. But for TCU to be 32nd and make the championship game, they're the first ones to do it. We have one more four-team playoff next year, which mm-hmm. will be the Rose Bowl and the Sugar Bowl, and then it goes to the 12 team. But uh, it's very hard to believe. Like when you talk about college football, there's almost never an underdog story that actually makes it this far. Mm-hmm. And TCU is 100% that. Really appreciate Jim Harbaugh for making it happen, you know, doing one for us there. Uh, the Ohio State Georgia game, Kent, was uh, another remarkable one. If it didn't exceed Michigan TCU, it came pretty close. Literally, as you said, finishing at the stroke of midnight on the East Coast with Georgia winning and uh, surviving, finding a way to get it done yet again. Kent, it was 42 41. Uh, this game had everything, the highs, the lows of what you want in a game. Uh, and unfortunately, for my sake, especially that Ohio State could not convert uh, to win this game. Georgia did it. They closed strong 18-3 to in the fourth quarter. Stetson Bennett made some plays. And it's, it's hard to be let down either way, right? Like when you watch this game from an impartial side, even as a fan of one of these teams, you just had to have an appreciation for just the tremendous level of skill and passion on the field. This was... Like we say, big fight feel, like in boxing or UFC range, this was a big fight feel that had everything up to the final second. It was, and then it almost kind of felt like like a final four. Like I remember years ago, uh, this would probably be maybe the 03 or 04, I think 04 back in the day when UConn and Duke were on one side of a final four, and then the other side was Georgia Tech and Oklahoma State. Yeah. And everybody was like, okay, let Georgia Tech and Oklahoma State play first. <laughs> that's going to be whoever loses to the Duke UConn winner. Yeah, that was and that was, and that was very similar to what happened in this situation where it's like, as soon as TCU won that game, it was like, okay, whoever wins Ohio state and Georgia is the overwhelming favorite now to win the national championship. And that's the way it felt. It really felt like this was, as you said, winner take all, Last team with the ball probably wins. Didn't quite go that route, but it felt that way. And also Stetson Bennett. I know people sort of look at him and question him. He was a Heisman finalist this year. He was the national championship winner last year. And he made plays in that title game against Alabama to win that game last year against the Heisman champion last year of Bryce Young. I do think in this game, too, you have to give a lot of credit to Ryan Day and his play calling. I mean, at one point in that game late, they're without Marvin Harrison Jr. They're without both Travion Henderson and Mayan Williams. Obviously, Jackson Smith and Jigba never got right from that shot he took in the opener. Uh, Kate Stover's out. There's so many big-time players out for Ohio State, and they're still scoring 40-plus points against this Georgia team. I know in the fourth quarter, it was only three. A lot of that Yes, I know Georgia changed their philosophy when Harrison Jr. went down. But on the other hand, Ryan Day, I thought, gave an A or A-plus performance in play caller. And it was the best game that Stroud ever played. Because the one thing we've always kind of said about Stroud, and I had one of my friends texting during the game who's kind of a casual college football fan, because I had told him that Stroud just doesn't run the ball. And he said to me, he goes, I thought you said he's not a good runner. And I said, (laughs) well, no, I never said he's not a good runner. Who's this to run? Mm -hmm. And in this game... He ran the ball, and he knew they needed to run the football uh, in order to make plays, especially 
when Harrison Jr. went down because instead of having those deep crossing routes and just allowing him to always get open when things broke down, yeah. Stroud became kind of their main offense in many regards, taking those eight-yard runs or 15-yard runs. And, you know, that 20-run or whatever it was late in that game to get in field goal range, that's not something I think Georgia anticipated C.J. Stroud doing as they headed into that game. No. But good on him to do that. And it really was one of those. It's just one play here and there. I know you texted me and our buddy Matt Gothard about that. At the end of the day, it's really one play here and there that would have been the main difference. And with these two teams – with as close a talent as there is. And any year you go in, you hear Ohio State and Georgia, those are type of teams that are good enough to win the title. And it really was. One play ended up being the difference when all said and done yeah. with the missed field goal. And I don't blame – you can't blame the kicker. It wasn't a chip shot. It's a 50-yarder. But it's also a tough position to put your kicker in. Yeah. I wanted to I want to bring up a lot. You, you made some great points there. It is hard to believe that's only the second time these teams have played, and I feel like that might change a lot going forward given the state of the programs. This was a classic, and you start with giving credit to Stetson Bennett and that Georgia offense down the stretch. They were without, you know, Washington goes down. They have a lot of underrated. I mean, Georgia, we know that they're talented. They've been recruiting so well. We just assume, and, and, and all of our focus and attention goes to the big boys, but the still the skill guys in Mitchell and McIntosh, we know Brock Bowers, but Jackson had that big catch. Those guys stepped up. Uh, Arlen Smith was the other one. But, you know, there was so much credit to go around to, to Georgia getting back in that game. I wanted to actually shout out Kent. It was Ohio State's line that impressed me the most because going into this game, we know how good Georgia's interior is. They lose all those NFL guys. They replace them. For most of that game, Ohio State's offensive line held their own and actually outplayed what Georgia was trying to do defensively. You do mention that the, the, the things change. They tighten up down the stretch. I don't want to be one to make excuses. I would have liked Ohio State's chances a lot if Harrison's in the game, not just the targeting, which we can get into in a second, but just the sense of having him on that last drive even could have changed what Ohio State could have done because you sent me a text during that game like, imagine having to guard this guy. Like, he, he's the biggest difference maker in college football from a skill position standpoint. Oh, 100%. And, yeah, I mean, also you look at the skill position in this game and you have Harrison, Brock Bowers. I mean, Donnie Mitchell stepped up big after missing, I believe, all season with an injury. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I saw the stat that said three playoff games, three career touchdowns in those games. Yeah. That's that's a guy that, you know, you, you need guys like that in these situations sometimes that aren't necessarily like an All-American throughout the season, but in big games they step up. And uh, it's pretty wild to think about this, too, where you look at Kirby Smart and he's kind of not only taken Nick Saban's blueprint, but he's now become – this is what Alabama was. It is, and, and that timeout he called was was it's a game saver as well. But I thought I had the exact same thought, Ken. I thought that in the moment he was acting like Saban. They got down, they got punched in the mouth, and he didn't panic. Which he, I be frank, I think he's done that before. But he handled it. He knew he had a team. He knew it was a long game. He trusted his players. He made some slight, subtle adjustments. He was very Saban like in this individual game too. Yeah, and he trusts his unit, and uh, that, that's the one thing that some coaches, as much as they have talent and as much as they have on paper a team that you think would win it all, in the moment, some coaches just don't trust that their guys will make the plays. Mm -hmm. And now uh, the timeout was different. As it turns out, though, I don't know if you saw the video 
that's been going around yesterday, but Ohio State actually did have 12 guys on the field as that snap happened. Yeah. So that probably could have been reviewed <laughs> in retrospect and saved them the timeout. But in that moment, it was a great timeout, and Ohio State looked to easily have it. That might have gotten flagged. Sometimes you get away with stuff like that, though. But yet Kirby Smart has turned into a guy that – and he should have faith in his team because right. he has as good of players as anybody. But Stetson Bennett, that's a guy that I think Kirby Smart can you know, ride a little bit on the sideline and chew him out a bit when they're struggling. And he knows he's going to react in a good way. And yeah. he's a guy that former walk-on, got a scholarship – you know, probably a kid that's had to gone through quite a bit on those practice fields that come game time, it's probably one of the easier days of his week in many regards. And then on defense, we know this isn't quite Georgia's defense last year. And that's where Ohio State had the matchup advantage. And the reason I thought the game would be close and I thought Ohio State would cover, uh, I did predict Georgia to win. I thought it would be a closer of the two. But that matchup with Georgia's secondary and Ohio State's receivers was an advantage for the Buckeyes, and they took advantage of that throughout the game. And uh, as you said, if Ohio State would have won the game, Stroud's clearly the MVP, but that offensive line would have been a secondary MVP, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, because allowing, giving your quarterback enough time against Georgia that you can run those deep crossing routes with effectiveness the way they were all game – that, you can't get away with that if your offensive line's not blocking well up front. And they were for probably, what, 55 of the 60 minutes the Ohio State offensive line held up. It was just a couple <coughs> times here and there that Georgia broke through. But yeah. overall, just a great game, two great teams. Uh, certainly Ohio State stepped up in the biggest game of their season. I guess you can say the Michigan game was nearly as big. But let's be real, this is a playoff game, so it's slightly bigger. Yeah. This was the best performance they had. Now, I understand this is the most points Michigan's or Ohio State's ever scored and didn't win a game. Mm. They've never not won a game when they scored 41 points. So that does fall on Jim Knowles on this defense. But sometimes great teams are going to score now. We know offenses have advantages. This isn't yeah. the 1970s and 80s or even early Saban years where you can probably win a somewhat of a slugfest. No, you're 100% right. You're 100% right. The, the game is changing this direction. It's one of the things that's made Saban so good is that he you know, has adapted to the times. C.J. Stroud, final point on this. Unbelievable game. His best game. His best highlight tape to throw his hat in the race, why he should be the number one pick between him and Bryce Young. It's going to be a fun debate there. And I have no ill will towards Ryan Day. I don't. He coached a great game. It came down to the wire. Georgia made a few more plays. That's what happens. And the final, the final drive without Harrison. I know they run that first down play. People are critical of that. They still threw it two more times. One got tipped. You do run the risk of throwing an interception there. Again, no complaints. Classic game. Just in go Ohio State's way. That's all I'm going to say. Props to Georgia. We were, we were having fun watching it. So that's all we can really ask for. And I don't hate the first down run there because you still have two timeouts. And what you're thinking in that moment, and I get this if you're Ryan Day, you're thinking Georgia's going to be a bit more conservative here knowing we're already in field goal range. They're going to drop seven or eight more than likely, and we might be able to just get away with a six or seven or eight-yard gain here. Exactly. And now we're either closer to a second and short, we still have our timeouts, and we're closer to a very makeable field goal. Yeah. Once you got stopped for that loss, there was a moment of like, oh, no, we don't want to do anything more negative and 
clearly yeah, on that third threw. down, Stroud's running for his life. Yeah. But I don't mind the first down call. It was just not executed well. That's all. And that's where, as we said, sometimes it's not always coaching. It's can the players go out there and execute the plays? And that's something that I think of. If Ohio State ran that same play in that situation 10 times, I don't think it's a negative play more than two of those 10 times. So overall, it's like, I can totally get why people would get on him if they had like no timeouts there and they yeah, were doing exactly. that. But all you're trying to do is get five, six, seven, eight yards and it just didn't happen. I mean, that's football. Like you line up sometimes <laughs> yeah. and the play you want to get, you don't get like that. You know, there are pretty good players on that Georgia side that can get you a negative one rush every so often. Kent Brown here on the Money Mitch Effect. Well, just some quick thoughts on the final. Um, I'm seeing about 13, 12 and a half, 13 for Georgia. I, I think you're going to be hard-pressed, Kent, to find someone that will pick TCU to outright win this game. But do you think it will be closer than that near two-touchdown margin? Uh, man, it's hard to say. The one thing I like with TCU is they do have Quentin Johnston, who is a difference-maker, playmaker on the outside. And – I feel like if TCU didn't have that, they probably wouldn't be able to have enough juice to, 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 to cover this game. But he's good enough. He might just beat the Georgia secondary twice the way he did with Michigan and get you 150 yards and two touchdowns. And if that's the case, they probably do stay somewhat close. I have a feeling it's going to be Georgia winning by right around that amount, you know, 14 points, 13 points, 10 points, maybe 17. Ultimately, for TCU, they have to play clean football. They yeah. can't afford to give up short fields. They can't afford to have a big special teams error. Uh, Max Duggan was a bit sloppy at times against Michigan, and because they were up multiple scores a lot of that game, it didn't cost them ultimately. You can't do that against Georgia. I would lean towards saying, just again, I'm kind of playing the fact that we just saw two classics and we've seen the history of these CFP games. And in that CFP playoffs, for the most part, we see more blowouts than we see like close games. So I'm going to say Georgia does cover probably towards the end, ends up winning by two touchdowns or more. But I don't think it's like 27-7 to 7 at the half and it's game over type of deal. Yeah. I expect TCU to make some plays, probably score in the 20s. And then Georgia probably ends up scoring around what they did against Ohio State, where it gets up into the low 40s, high 30s, and that's how it's done. Uh, but it should be it should be fun. And again, this is kind of as we said, the first time that it's a real underdog that's in this situation. And it's also kind of fun too to enter a title game and have a team who's like plus 375 <laughs> on the money line. Yeah. So like it's really low risk, high reward in that regard. Yeah. So if you're if you're anti-Georgia or you want to root for the underdog, uh, I would say maybe just sprinkle take the it money all. line going in and see what happens. And uh, it, it would be kind of a fun ride if it's somehow like a nail biter and you have that ticket that's almost four to one. So, uh, you know, ride Max Duggan in that regard. But my guess would be Georgia does end up covering but I'm not against somebody taking that Horn Frogs money mm -hmm. line and seeing what happens. Over under 62 and a half. I, I, I feel like the, the trend of bad semis, good finals might be reversed here. And uh, maybe it's a, a, a slight under that 62 and a half. But I'm with you. I think Georgia will cover uh, begrudgingly. Although, on the other hand, if TCU wants to stay around in this game, it's going to go over. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't see them winning a. 
no. 27-20 game or something. <laughs> no. Well, Kent, uh, fun playoff talk there. Uh, I do want to put a bow on the Bulls. I mean, we saw some New Year's Day, I guess New Year's, the second New Year's, uh, January 2nd game, and uh, some New Year's 6 games before that. But a couple things to talk about. I guess we can start with uh, another USC uh, defensive uh, disaster performance in the second half. Props to Tulane going from two wins to winning a New Year's 6 game. But, man, that's a, that's a tough one for USC to wear, uh, that loss to the green wave, how they lost it, how they took that safety, which was the only scenario that created a loss opportunity. But green wave topped them uh, and win a New Year's Six game down in New Orleans. Yeah, it's also cool to see a guy like Michael Pratt already commit to coming back to Tulane. We saw Grayson McCall's coming back to Coastal, Frank Harris at, at UTSA, uh, those type of like the group of five guys. Not all of them are leaving to go to the big time you know, upper echelon programs the way most of us thought would happen with NIL. Tulane's one of those teams where I knew they would run the football well against SC. You just didn't quite know if it would be enough to get a win. The fact that that line was one and a half or two and a half or two, depending on where you saw it, kind of showed you that I think Vegas wanted people to bet USC in this game. And for a while, that looked like the right side. Uh, look, if you're USC, it's pretty evident. Like as And this is Lincoln Riley from when he was at Oklahoma, as good as your offense is, as many Heisman winners as you have, you have to focus on defense at some point. Mm -hmm. And you're just not going to get over that hump. Yes, you might win your conference. Yes, you're probably going to be in a playoff, especially a 12-team playoff going forward. Although, they are going to be in the Big Ten by that point. So it does change things. The Pac-12 is easier, in my opinion, to get to that 12-team playoff. But for USC to lose that 15 point lead with three and a half minutes left is pretty embarrassing. And it's something that sh that shouldn't get done. You should be able to close out the game. Massive special teams error. As you said, let led them to that safety. And then as soon as Tulane got the ball back, I, what USC fan or what USC player who's on that sideline or coach expected the defense to hold. I don't think anybody <laughs> really know. did. And I know Tulane converted a, a cup fourth down. The touchdown got reversed. But it was a pretty easy drive for the most part. And that continues to be USC's problem is too many missed tackles, too soft. And I know people kind of said Ohio State was soft because they lost to Michigan twice. I never quite bought that. I do think there was a little bit of Ryan Day is definitely an offensive first coach. But I never bought that they're soft because they have plenty of good defensive players. USC, on the other hand, outside of you know their one defensive end, they really don't have defensive players that are NFL guys. And you watch Tulane in that game, they averaged 10.3 yards per play. To put that in perspective, the leading team in the country this year was 7.2 yards per play. So you let a group of five team with nothing but two and three star players average three yards more per play than what the national number one best was. That's, you know, a touchdown every snap. That that just isn't good enough. And I know you had Alex Grinch up at Ohio State briefly, and that was not something that worked out there. It's not working out with him at USC either. But if he keeps Grinch or he doesn't really focus on defense the way he focuses on offense, USC will be a fun team. Caleb Williams will be an excellent quarterback mm -hmm. to watch. But they're just not going to win big enough to be on the national championship level yeah. and you saw it in their last two games they got their asses kicked against utah 
and they're and for the most part, I know they only lost by one point with eight seconds left, but they got their asses kicked against mm-hmm. Tulane as well, mm-hmm. and that just shouldn't be the case. It's your USC. It's a culture thing. I think it's not even a player thing. The NIL helped them get players in um, in terms of the transfer portal as well and the recruiting classes that Lincoln Riley stacks up. But it is a structural, cultural thing for the program. So we'll see. I agree. They're going to have to address that if they want to be big players on the national stage, uh, even get to the national stage. Uh, and then, unfortunately for you, Kent Penn State triumphs on the Rose Bowl. So have to, uh, I guess, wear that one. Yeah, it's a, I mean, look, it's a great win for Penn State. I mean, Sean Clifford ended his career on about the highest note that I think any Penn State fan could have expected. He was great in that game. Nick Singleton busted open that 88-yard run. It was a big play offense, which I think going into the game, most people would have thought if Penn State wins and scores that amount of points, they're going to do it with long drives, kind of you know six yards here, seven yards here. And instead, that second half was big play. You know, to flip it, it's unfortunate for Utah back-to-back oh, years. The Cam Rising, who's a local kid. Knocked out of from, two Rose Bowls. That's just yeah. brutal. Now, in this game, frankly, on that play, though, he really should have slid. I just don't know why you're running mm-hmm. into the heart of a defense where there's three guys that are crunching you up. You already had the first down. It's easier to say that watching it on TV than it is in the moment on the field. But the second that happened, I was I was hopeful he'd get up. And it's like, man, he did not need to take that shot. And that's the thing that hurt. In that moment, it was still a seven-point game. 21-14 was pretty even. And for Cam Rising not to be able to finish either Rose Bowl is tough. But, yeah, I mean, you have to give credit to Penn State to win that game. And, look, their regular season was bizarre, mm-hmm. where they're out of conference game at Auburn, where you would think on paper that would be an amazing accomplishment to go into the Plains and win. That's an Auburn team that was searching for an identity all season. And then – they got in the Big Ten play, and they lost their two biggest games and, frankly, really weren't very close in either game. I guess the Ohio State game, they were somewhat close. But this was a Penn State team that had to prove. They were 10-2. and two, They were going into a Rose Bowl, and a lot of people didn't quite know how good they were. So mm-hmm. it was a nice win for them to get that, and uh, we'll see what they do next season. I mean, Drew Aller's a five-star recruit that a lot of Penn State people are high on. I think uh, they return pretty much their offensive line intact. Their defense is always great with edge rushing. I mean, with Manny Diaz, he was a great defensive coordinator at Miami. When he became a head coach, things yeah. kind of fell off. <laughs> I think that's safe. Good, yeah, he's always been a, court, a good coordinator. And you see a Penn State this year. He was aggressive. He was a good coordinator. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see what they do going forward. I certainly was not rooting for them, but I have to give credit when it's yeah. due. And they were – it was an impressive win because – I thought Utah was the better football team going into that game, and clearly by the end of it, they weren't. Well, Ken, bowl season's always fun. we got one game left. Uh, blast talking to you on the podcast. I have two last things for you. One, get a vibe check on the Penguins, where you're at with them. Yeah, it's uh, the Just, Classic was a tough one. They're because... on the outside right now, so they're in the mix for a wild card spot. The Metro's you know, tough. They're sixth in the division, but they're only three points out of a playoff spot. Well, so. you, you, need, you need Jari healthy because – Smith's just not the guy and uh, you know I was watching that game with a few Penguins and Bruins fans and uh, you know at one point uh, my buddy is a Pens fan said after the game he goes if the Smith has to be our goalie going forward I hope he's going to break Gretzky's record this year so uh, <laughs> That's pretty so good. you hope that you hope the goaltending is yeah. better uh, I think the Penguins are you know they're kind of where I thought they would be at this point their team is honestly not that special this year 
it would be nice to make the playoffs. I kind of have a hunch. They always seem to find a way there, but they need they need something. Like there there needs to be a couple trades that are made. I think the defense is just not very good. And uh, you know, as much as Latang is kind of a a polarizing guy with many Penguins fans, where mm-hmm. you know he's great on the power play, but sometimes a liability when it actually has to be even strength. They need more on on defense. If Jari actually is you know out for a little bit that would be tough to overcome but my my stance on the penguins is i i just i always have hope that they'll find their way through just because that's kind of what they do and you know at the end of the day crosby malkin those guys are still healthy but mm-hmm. i don't expect it to be a playoff run or anything like that my my hunch is they get in but it's probably a first round loss mm-hmm. but uh yeah it was an underwhelming performance on Saturday because or on Monday I should say because first period they had plenty of chances I honestly thought they probably should have had one or two second period not much and then in the third period they were just hanging on for dear life and it seemed like it was only a matter of time you know before the bees scored so uh Mm -hmm. you know it would have been nice to get a point you know you leave Fenway with one point you feel like okay it's not a bad day at the office to leave there with no points that's where it was disappointing but yeah just overall my stance is i don't think they're that good therefore i'm not going to be overly disappointed if they don't make a run but it would be disappointing if they don't find their way in the playoffs yeah crosby having a great year malkin still producing but they're pretty top heavy between those two and gensel you, you know you'd like to have some more support i think that with the goalie as you said could make a difference uh, last thing i know you're a golf guy uh, through and through I have to ask you this hypothetical question. In light of the fact that there's two Scott Stallings and the one got the wrong you know, invitation to the Masters and they did luckily get it all sorted out, if there were two Kent Browns and one was a world-class golfer and you got the invitation, how long do you think it would take before they realized you were the wrong guy? Like the second hole, maybe the third hole? I, I just think at the tee. I feel like, you know, there's certain things, there's certain things. That, or honestly, it would honestly be a check-in, to be honest. Okay. Because uh, there's certain things the pros would do. You know, I don't think I would show up quite with the with the pro gravitas that'd be like, oh, this guy's definitely good to tee off at 1027 on, on Thursday, or here's the practice round. Yeah, I would show up pretty quickly, and it would be evident. Uh, you know, if you actually just threw me on the course – yeah, probably right off the first tee, I think it would be like, okay, this guy's not quite to whatever level. But, uh, yeah, I'd love to go to Augusta and find out. Like, that's for sure. I've never been on the grounds at Augusta National. I want to, uh, uh, to play there would be certainly a all-time moment, you know, in my life and in my sports life. But, yeah, to actually show up and try to pretend like I'm good enough to be out there, I don't think it would last very long. <laughs> have to wonder. I mean, I don't know. It's yeah. I think if you can get by all the red tape, maybe just get to the course, you might be able to surprise yourself. But thought that was a funny way to uh, to end our show here. Ken I'm more Mer- like a Riviera guy. I think Riviera I can get away oh. with. It. If I'm teeing off from ten, I can just take a nice. You know, ten would suit me pretty well. The pros get rattled on ten because it's a 300 yard par four, which is a quote unquote short par four for them. That's not going to be a problem for me. I'm not reaching that green ever in my life. So I could tee off on 10 at Riviera, probably manage a nice wedge in, and then maybe, you know, by the end of the hole, when I'm probably putting for double bogey, then they would start noticing and say, you're not teeing off at 11. Mm -hmm. But I think Riviera, I know the course a lot better that I can get away with. Like, okay, I can tee off, get down the hill, and probably get on the green before somebody would really tell me to go. 
Yeah, Riviera's got a lot of great sights and sounds. Um, and my favorite personal sound was, uh, ma'am, they're definitely going to have another uh, screwdriver. And that was by your father. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah Riviera's so, the best. I love getting out there. And that's all of a sudden about a month yeah. away. So uh, yeah, I, I can't, can't wait. I can't wait the, between that and Torrey Pines, those are always the two now that I try. I try my best to get out to both of those every year. And uh, they're always a lot of fun. Can't wait for that. Kent Brown, thanks for coming on the Money Mitch Effect. Always a pleasure, sir. Talk to you soon. Have a good one, buddy. All right, always a blast talking to Kent Brown about college football. Some excellent coverage all year. Just one game left, unfortunately. Makes me sad, but it's the title game at SoFi. Kent will actually be at that game, so I'll have to ask him how it goes down. But thanks again to Kent Brown for coming on the show. Now we switch it up, talking NFL with Josh Whitten. Again, thoughts and prayers to DeMar Hamlin. He continues to fight at the Cincinnati Hospital. We break down the tragedy, the unfortunate tragedy uh, that took place in Monday Night Football. We talk about the playoff pictures in both conferences, who we like, who we don't like going into the big NFL playoff postseason. And we also talk golf, PGA versus Liv. More to discuss in that as the battle rages on. Here's Josh Wynn now on the Money Mitch Effect. Right now on the show, joined by friend of the program. Haven't talked to this guy in a while. Uh, calling in from down south in the great state of Texas is Josh Whitten. Josh, thanks for coming back on to the Money Mitch Effect 2023. Let's uh, get after it. Happy New Year, Mitch. Always, always, always happy to be on. Yeah, it's fun. We got a lot to, to recap and discuss. Uh, we do have to talk about the serious stuff, uh, you know, the Monday night football game that wasn't played because of the injury to DeMar Hamlin. It was just very scary, and I know – you know, we grew up in football families, Josh. That that's an unprecedented yeah. tragedy that happened, and we're hoping that he's okay. There's still, you know, critical condition there. But as scary as it gets in, in sports, and really, unfortunately, puts everything into perspective. It really does, and, and there's been a storm of uh, on social media and with these commentators the last few days. Um, and yes, we all love sports, but this is more about life. And I think uh, both the Bengals and the Bills handled it beautifully on Monday night. Um, we don't aren't really sure what the NFL was saying during all that time about the five minutes to prep and all the stuff Joe and T- Troy were talking about. But great or better news this morning, more promising that, mm-hmm. that he's uh, he's able to breathe more on his own. And uh, it sounds like from his family that things are certainly not out of the woods yet. But um, yeah, very very and such yeah. a freak freak. I mean, yeah, bigger hits than some of these. You saw some mm-hmm. off in the. In the earlier game um, that day, um, in in one of the games, I think it was the LSU game. So, but nothing like what we saw Monday night, and that oh. stoppage was so scary. It reminds me of the the soccer player last year collapsing on the field and them having to do CPR as well. So, yeah. just terrific. Yeah, um, we'll see what happens, Mitch. I mean, this is going to be mm-hmm. clearly. I mean, the, you're talking about the, the second and third seed in the AFC. So. You know, the, fortunately, the NFL builds in that week between Super Bowls. Do they have to push all the games back? Yeah. We're going to see over the next there, few days how that's going to play out. But there's so much. Yeah, there's so much to discuss here. I want to give proper credit and praise to the training staff to, oh. you know, saving him essentially. And, and you know, those defibrillators that should, I mean, should be on the sideline for all these games at all levels. I mean, that talk about a lifesaver, literally. I mean, it was, you know, it's impossible to get back into the, the swing of the game. I know the NFL, and I don't want to bash 
anybody I want to just try to stay positive with all this. They didn't yep. really have a contingency plan because this had not happened. So I think there were a lot of people trying to figure it out. But you understand why these players, especially the Bills players, having seen their teammate, their brother on the field like that, couldn't get back into the state to play play football. So uh, we're just we're just hoping for the best. I mean, by all accounts, just a great kid and somebody that's done a lot of good. And you know, yeah. at least we're we're hopeful that there hasn't been bad news yet. So. Um, we'll yeah. just kind of see and, and go from there on, on the football side, which again is not anywhere near as important, but the NFL is going to be in a predicament of trying to figure out how this works because, you know, there is so much seating implications for a lot of teams, for division races, for playoff races, who gets the buy, how this works is going to be tricky. I think they've made the right call so far. We're going to just try to go ahead with the week 18 games and then figure it out from there. But yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, what do you do logistically? The Super Bowl date, you'd, you'd assume Josh is set in stone. Could you put, you know, delay everything a week and get rid of the the Pro Bowl week and then have just one week before the Super Bowl? But is that going to create unfair competitive advantages? It's just going to be a mess, which, you know, we understand that that's the way this has to work, but it's going to be a tough decision, tough couple decisions for the NFL. It really is. And it's going to be, uh, you know, like you just mentioned, the the rest of this week and until, uh, um, until games get kicked off on Saturday uh, is going to be, interesting to see how um how things play out but um yeah first and foremost the the thoughts still have to be with um with his family and um the bills the bills team and um it's been incredible to see the outpouring of support like we've seen over the years um the bills donating to uh certain other opponents charities and stuff but how much money has been raised for mm-hmm. for Darvin's charity and what he put together before the holidays. And they've raised over half a million dollars already. And it's just awesome. Just goes to show you there is some good in this, in this country, despite all the, mm-hmm. the negative talk every day. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, the positivity showing out. So we'll, we'll see what happens again. Prayers to DeMar Hamlin. Hopefully him, hopefully he does better. And his family is uh, able to get some good news here shortly. Uh, the, the NFL action's been interesting. I, I want to talk about, you know, on the, on the lighter notes, obviously, what we've seen in the NFL, how this is starting to shake out. Uh, and I guess for you being a Tampa Bay Bucks fan, back to the playoffs, although not exactly the juggernaut of years past, but they do win the division. Somehow, some way, Tom Brady wins his 19th division title. Pretty remarkable. And after the start last week, I was watching that game. They were down 14 nothing. Sam Darnold was looking great. Oh, yeah, your and, boy. <laughs> and after your boy, Baker, yeah, I know you. But after he left, you know, they've had, you know, Matt Rule gets fired and, and they have a new coach there. And they, they seem to be turning things around. And I thought, holy cow, this, this is going to be interesting. But as we've seen the last couple weeks, Brady, you know, brings them back and Mike Evans was on fire catching all those balls and uh, all those touchdowns. And um, it, it's going to be interesting. I mean, living here in Dallas, I've already heard the rumbling. They, they don't want to play Brady in week two, if they get through there. And uh, it, it, it's always difficult. And we saw with, with green Bay this weekend too. I mean, mm-hmm. these vets uh, and two of the best to ever do it, but uh, nobody wants to play either of those opponents, uh, green Bay or Tampa Bay in the, uh, in the playoffs because they are two of the best of all time under center. So, uh, yeah, the, the bucks, the bucks eked in that division was brutal. Um, you know, we'll see here if, uh, if Carolina can keep getting better and whatever's going to happen in Atlanta. And I don't know what they're going to do with the quarterback situation in new Orleans, but, but yeah, the, the bucks are back and, uh, 
looks like Green Bay should should get in the um, <clears throat> as the wild card team in that division. And Minnesota's on a terrible slide, so it's always fun these last couple of weeks. Now that we're into Week 18, which is you know only the second year of that, but it's always fun. This wild card week yeah, is one of my favorites. It, it really is, and now with the extra game, I know there's there's so much football. There's even a Monday night game. Um, the Bucks are locked in. The only team that really knows what's what's going on in the NFC. You mentioned a lot there I want to get to. One being, you know, Jalen Hurts' injury has opened the door on the, the top seed in the NFC yeah. because he being out there, Minshew hasn't played well. They lose to the Saints in an ugly game where it wasn't just on the quarterback. But suddenly Dallas, you know, Minnesota loses. Now the Niners going to make a deep run. I mean, it's it's opened some things up where Philly looked to be sitting pretty, but now they're facing adversity for the first time. How do they respond to that? Minnesota is twelve and four, and you think, what a great story! They they missed the playoffs last year. They're you know, if you would have said you know going into this year right now, okay, the Vikings are going to be twelve and four, we'd be like, oh, this is great, dark horse, all this stuff. They've got the worst point differential of any twelve and four team in yeah. NFL history, and we're just not taking them seriously. It just it's wild, but that's the reality. It is the reality, and you just mentioned San Fran, which who would have thought after losing their QB one and two that they'd be in this position with a rookie and. Um, that defense is incredible. Uh, they didn't play awesome last week, but you know they're right there for the. They have it right there in their grasp, and they do. Um, you know, I, I'm never going to be a Cowboys fan, and I say that in, in yeah, here, lock the doors uh, when you inside say that. my home yeah. with the doors locked. Yeah. But uh, here in Dallas, but uh, but who knows if if they can maintain? You know, great running game, good defense, those kind of things. That, that's what plays in the playoffs. So. Um, yeah, always exciting. And, and as you mentioned, you know, right at the start of our conversation, so many implications with the AFC, but the NFL will figure that out. That's what they do. And, um, you know, it, it will get sorted. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just going to be a little bit more compromised right. than, than normal. Right. So. I think the uh, the Niners, I mean, credit to Brock Purdy for stepping in, Mr. Irrelevant, last pick in the draft oh. and now playing well. But, you know, I, I just also think that this is no, no knock on him, but – I think it'd be tough to find a quarterback that wouldn't enjoy playing in that system because yeah. Shanahan is just a genius out there. He finds ways. They've done this without Debo Samuel the last couple of weeks, and they're still they're still doing work. Um, so they would be the team I trust the most there. But you know the Cowboys, you know a lot of uncertainty, a lot of unproven teams, which is why you know does Dallas with this one-two running punch and an improved defense, who they make their move? What's Philly going to look like? It's why you believe in a guy like Brady if they just get in the dance. Can they figure it out? It's also, on that same regard, Aaron Rodgers is right on, knocking on the door from 5-8, oh, and yeah. eight, from 5-8 and eight all the way back to now win and get in game. It's, uh, it's why I think, you know, that Lions game, which the NFL did kind of screw over the Seahawks with the schedule. Like, we can just honestly say that up front because yeah. the Packers get there. You know, we know why they did it, Aaron Rodgers, Sunday night primetime. But for years, they've tried to avoid this scenario where, the Lions could be playing for nothing in that game, you know, and then that would be unfortunate <laughs> because I think this could be a great, I'd love to see, unfortunately, the Seahawks lose and then make this a true winner gets in game. But either way, it's going to be some fireworks. And if Rodgers gets in like Brady, you got to give him a puncher's chance. R-E-L-A-X. I mean, that guy is incredible. And and you're welcome, uh, by the way, Aaron Rodgers. I know he said thanks to the Browns, but I just want to say you're welcome. <laughs> uh, but no, yeah. Without his receivers from last year, um, you saw what Adams did in, in Vegas this year on a bad Raider team. But you imagine if they had that 1,500 yards back in Green Bay, they would be the favorites, and they would be more than likely 
13 and three right now, but mm-hmm. um, you know uh, he's, he's doing it right. They, they're playing well and I wouldn't want to play them just like we talked about with the Bucks. So um, yeah, so, so much fun. And, and that's why we love football so much. And well, I'm sure we're going to touch on uh, the natty for, for next Monday, but this is the greatest time of year for, for sports fans um, of the NFL and college football, because you yeah. get to see these kids and that's what they are. And that goes back to Monday night, the 24 year old kid getting injured. And we mm-hmm. don't want to overlook that, that part no. of it, playing a game no. for entertainment and joy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So a lot more important things to think about um, yeah. other than trying to get these 60 minutes played. The last thing on the NFC I do want to mention is that I think Brian Dable is clearly coach of the year, getting that Giants team into the playoffs. It's it's been a remarkable job by him, you know, with the leftover, with the leftovers from last year essentially in year one to do it. So huge. Now, I don't know. I don't know if the the vote of confidence <laughs> for their QB and their mm-hmm. running back who have been injured so much over the past four years is, is we'll what. See. <laughs> they yeah. should have said, right, we're going to yeah. be heading into the playoffs, so you'll let them get some reps and see how they do. But uh, but just, you're right. I mean, it's a phenomenal job up there, especially with all the noise and all the, you know, the <clears throat> the reporters week to week. It's a difficult place to play. And we saw the Jets on the AFC side start off so hot, and they've been in a struggle because they can't find a quarterback yeah. over, over the last uh, few weeks. Yeah. So, yeah, great things uh, all around for, for the NFL and uh, – very exciting time. Yeah, the only things I want to mention in the AFC quickly is I'm glad we're going to see Justin Herbert in the playoffs. It's going to be fun to see another great quarterback involved there. And it uh, could be Trevor Lawrence as well, so that could be good to see those guys in. Uh, and you have to feel, you also have to feel for the Dolphins because this Tua injury, it just oh it just sabotaged their season. There's no other way to put it. But, you know, there's good and bad, obviously, with all this stuff. But the, the AFC particularly, we're going into playoffs with some of the best you know, one to seven, you know, six out of the seven, at least, we're going to have elite-level quarterbacks. Yeah, it, it, it's fun to watch and high-scoring and in offensive football like we all love to, to tune into. And we'll see how it plays out, like we said. But uh, but um, a lot of youth and a lot of uh, good young players that are taking over for the old guard and the mm-hmm. NFC with, with, like we just mentioned, Rodgers and Brady. Yeah. So, very exciting times, and it's funny to think that that uh, Patrick and Josh are not the old guard yet in the no. AFC, but they've been around. And, yeah. and uh, you know, at this point, and I think we talked um, earlier in the fall, but I was at week one um, at SoFi for the opening game when the Rams got obliterated by the Bills. And that night was telling, and I remember being there with my brother, and he's like, they're going to win the Super Bowl. And their offense is great, their defense is great. Um, and um, I, they've already got their monkey off the back w- with the win in, in, in KC, and um, it's going to be really fun to see uh, how that all plays out and, and just some hopefully great performances by these incredible athletes. Josh Witten here on the Money Mitch Effect. Uh, before we turn the page and, and leave the NFL discussion, I just want to mention we're also getting to the coaches getting fired. They've already gotten fired, and the carousel starting. Broncos go one and done with Hackett. The, the, the drama that I'm looking at now, and I know there's going to be more moves, but what's going to happen with Sean Payton's inevitable return to the NFL? Is it going to happen this year? He's going to, you know, he's putting together a staff. Is it going to, is it going to wait a year? And then judging by what we saw in college football on, on, you know, New Year's Eve, does Jim Harbaugh return to the NFL already? Those are my two big, my big jumping off points right now. Uh, great. I mean, 
you're right. Where does Sean Payton go? He's clearly the number one. The stat of going with these 30-something coaches is put on pause a little bit here because you have an iconic coach who can mold a quarterback. And is Denver the right spot? I don't think so, no, but Elway's not making decisions. Maybe they'll make a good one. Yeah, I just I don't know that he would want that with how Russ has looked and, and the, the the cap issues and everything. I just want to. He does not have to make this move now. He could do another year of TV. He's got all the time yep. in the world. One hundred percent, and I, I think he's got plenty of money and uh, you know kick back and work one or two days a week for Fox uh, for eighteen weeks a year. Pretty pretty good gig. So um, yeah, th- that in. You know, Harbaugh's beaten your bucks the last two years, and, and is that going to keep him in in college football? Who knows? I mean, he's got enough money. He doesn't need the money. Or does so, he walk off on that, top? You know, goes out two in a row. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe, but is it on top? He's lost. That's he true. hasn't been successful in the playoffs, and that still seems to be this, I mean, TCU's putting a wrench in it, but the SEC dominance and can, I mean, hopeful uh, 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 we have one more year, but you know, can USC and Ohio State, Michigan take that 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 stronghold of the SEC away from from the, their grasp? Because right now, Georgia's looking for back to back, and and you know Alabama's going to reload. They're they're going to have a top five pick in their quarterback Bryce, and just reload with another one down there for Nick, and probably already has him waiting in the wings. So yeah. um, it, it, it's it's going to be interesting to see. And my, my gut says that, that Jim comes back and uh, it's a Michigan and probably loses to Ryan day and Ohio State next year about 20. But. Yeah. Well, he's met with the Panthers by all accounts. So we'll see. It could be, you know, Darnold and, and Harbaugh again, but I, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to speculate too much yet. He does this before he likes to take the interviews and see what happens. Uh, who would have thought when we were at that TCU SMU game that we're watching one of the teams in the final, final game. I mean, but. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. What an atmosphere that was that day on campus at SMU. Certainly uh, must have to go back to that one in two years. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we'll see. I'm hoping TCU gives them a fight. It's going to be tough. The dogs are tough and seasoned and battle-tested. So we'll see what happens there. Um, Josh, I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about the golf season starting off. And the fireworks are still going. We are <laughs> we are raging, ready to go. It's PGA versus Live. The battle lines have been drawn. How should we feel about the start of the year? Some of the promos saying this is the real tour, like that other tour basically sucks. You know, how do we feel about the world of golf going into this season? I think it's the best thing that's happened to golf in since Tiger came on board 25 years ago. Uh, it, it has brought the sport back to kind of everyday uh, conversations. And for those who think live is bad for golf, I, I don't see how. Um, you know, that going back 13 months, it, it all happened at Riviera when Alan Shipnick uh, brought out the excerpt from the book he was writing on Phil. And Phil made those comments that I don't need to repeat, but Phil's hope was to really change the way the PGA Tour works. And he has, Mitch. I mean, it, if one PGA player is going to talk back to or talk poorly about Liv, then these guys are just egotistical multimillionaire maniacs because they should have ignored them, right? Like they should have ignored it. That the, I think the biggest problem yeah. was immediately identifying as a threat and going postal on it. Like, and I'm not defending everything that Mickelson did. I understand the logic and I get why 
PGA players should have had more revenue and should have had their licensing rights and all that. I think Mickelson went about it, went about it, him personally, not the whole live mindset, but in a very bad way. But hey, there was an issue. We've talked about this before, and it has helped the PGA in the long run. Like the players are making more money now than they ever had, so they have that to ever think. And they, 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 they've yeah. implemented, the, you know, the greatest thing. We've talked about this numerous times on the show together and even o- offline. The greatest thing about golf and tennis is if you don't play well, you're not making money. But what this live has done for the PGA Tour is help the smaller guys, the guys, not Mac, not McElroy or Cantlay or, uh, um, <clears throat> or anybody like that. It has helped. The, the player from 126 to, to 150 or 200. Now those guys are making $5,000 a week if they miss the cut. They automatically, a rookie on tour, can take up front a half a million dollars. $500,000 the PGA Tour is going to give them to kind of plan their schedule and set their, um, and set their season. So these are great things for the PGA Tour. Mm-hmm. So for McElroy to consistently, and McElroy is the now voice of the PGA Tour. And with Tiger playing a handful of events a year, McElroy is now the, the, the top dog. And he just constantly berates the live. And I'd prefer it to be more like John Robb. John has said, you know, he's, he said, I'm with the PGA Tour all along. I'm not going to change. But who am I to say that these guys going to secure more money for themselves and their families and their future generations? Why is that a bad thing? It's only going to give me more of a competitive advantage because some of the top players in the world are gone. So I don't understand why there needs to be this such negativity continual from the PGA Tour players. Hey, it's going to come to a head here in April at the Masters, but fortunately, uh, Fred Ridley and the, the Masters chairman has already said that the players are going to play. The Open Championship in Britain has said that the players are going to play. The live players, that is. So... Other than the PGA Championship, the U.S. Open really probably will not break ranks, and you can't call it an Open Championship. And they have these players that have won the Open Championship, like Brooks or mm-hmm. Bryson, mm-hmm. in the last or Dustin in the last few years, not get in. Yeah, they've won it. <laughs> they yeah. for, for you know life. I just want to see the life, be- I just want to see the best players play. I mean, that's where I'm coming from in terms of yeah. a, you know not a casual in between a casual and a diehard golf fan. I would prefer to see the best of the best play in these big tournaments. And I love that we've got some rivalries now. Um, and and yeah. I just, I, I think that, yeah, there's ways about going about it. I think you can be loyal, you can have your side, but you don't have to go out of the way to, I'll say it, you know, antagonize. That's what it sounds like yeah. for Rory. He's seeking conflict when there isn't one. And, you know, we'll see. We're going to see what happens eventually with the live tour on its own. And you don't need to be you know, actively you're voicing your opinion on every two, every two seconds on what happens, especially when, you know, they're getting better and better players and Josh, they're getting younger too. I think that's the part that could set live up for success. They're, they're really, you're absolutely right there, Mitch. And some of these young kids that, that didn't have that opportunity were in the, the, the lower rankings near the hundreds um, are now guaranteed money. And then you have some of the, 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 the older guys who, who jumped to live who are making serious cash and, you know, that's great for them and, and, and their families. And I mean, shoot, I don't think Dustin needs another $36 million like he won last year. But if he's going to clean up like that for the next few years, then that's, that's his choice. He made it. Yeah. And just like you said, the, the, the antagonizing um, way that some of these players are speaking, yeah. just 
you know, go about your own business, take care of yourself and, and the rest will, will all take care of itself as well. So, um, no, it, it's going to be great that the golfers are out in Hawaii this week. We're going to get started. I'm Lindsay and I are heading back to California for the, the Amex. And, you know, that field, Mitch, everyone's already – this is the tournament in La Quinta. It used to be the Bob Hope. Yeah. And we've been, I've been the last 20 years of my life. And it's so great to be out there. There's no fans because <laughs> nobody goes. Uh, but, I mean, they have the strongest field in golf yeah. since the Players' Championship wow. in Atlanta. So, I mean, you have – Scheffler and Cantley and Finau and all the guys, all the top guys are there. And that's just remarkable. At a, at a tournament in the desert where the winning score is going to be 25 under, they're going to, you know, the, and it typically was not one of the bigger events. Those were held right. for, you know, Riviera, which is now the Genesis, which is one of these elevated events that, that Rory and all the top players have to play. Uh-huh. And that's one of the things that the PGA Tour switched to because of Liv, because Liv's going to have 12, 14 events a year. They still ha- they haven't made that announcement. It's kind of odd. Um, they've only had secured seven courses for next year. So that's only half their schedule, which at this, at this date, that's kind of late. They need to, mm. they need to get into shape here and, and figure stuff out, but it'll all come together. They have the money and the backing to do it. Yeah. So, but, but you know, these 12 events with Genesis, uh, Arnold Palmer's event, uh, Jack's event, all these events now are $20 million purses for these players and three-year exemptions, not two. So there's a lot of these mandatory elevated events. I think they have to play, um, besides the four majors and the players, that's five, they have to play in these other 12 events. So the match play, which is the top 64, you know. It's going to bring, for these 20 events a year where everyone's playing together, a lot of excitement. And that is a great thing. I think so. so. Yeah, I mean, it's that was, it's going to be good. That, yeah, it's going to be really good. Sorry, one more, one more. But that was what Phil was talking about at the start. We've talked about this before. Phil's not my my favorite guy. He could have gone about things a lot differently and said things not as extreme as he did. However, he got the ball rolling, and I think everyone, the future generations on the PGA Tour, are going to benefit. A lot of these players grew up watching Tiger, and they want to try to break Tiger's records, which are not going to be broken, but they want to compete on the PGA Tour. Certainly, you're going to have some people go chase the money at live and not be able to play in some of these prestigious tournaments, but that's a choice they're going to make. Is it the money, or is it chasing majors? And at this point, without official world golf ranking points for the live Tour, those guys are going to drop out. And unless you've won a major in the past or a Grand Slam event, then you're not going to qualify. So, yeah, whereas we know Dustin's obviously going to be invited to every Masters until he dies, um, th- these, these um, <clears throat> exemptions from Bryson and Brooks and all the U.S. Open champions who have not won the Masters, those expire in five, ten years. So, you know, are, are you going to tell me that <laughs> they're not going to be eligible to play? That's kind of crazy. Um, and I, and I hope they figure it out. I, I hope, you know, because of the, the, um, the numbers in the field, they're not eligible for those other ranking points. So with only 48, 56 players in the field, they're not going to get a full field event like the PGA tour does with 100 and, um, mm-hmm. 140 players. So, you know, lots to talk about continually <laughs> yeah. throughout the year. Let's just hope they both go on to great success and, I hope so, and, man. uh, and, and, you know, how great would it be down the stretch if it's like Dustin and Rory in the final group I want it. at the Masters? 
I mean, know. that would be absolutely remarkable. Rory going for the Grand Slam, its fourth major, finally, after 15 years, getting it off the snide, and Dustin being the, you know, the bad boy who, who defected and who abandoned the tour that made him successful. Well, Dustin could have retired last year instead of going to the live and never had to work again a day in his life. Besides the fact that he's married to well, Gretzky's daughter. That like, helps. They have enough money. They don't need to do another penny, but... Hey, if you're going to get $150 million and then make $36 million on top of it last year, I think he had a pretty good year. So you're hard pressed to find anybody that wouldn't take that money after the success he's had on the tour. And it's kind of like for him, it's probably like, well, what else do I need to prove? So last, I mean, I could go on all day, but uh, I know you have a limit on uh, <laughs> no, I know, man. It, there's a lot so, to uh, talk about. I just want to see what the next golf year has for us. I'd like to see. You know, some of my favorites maybe get there first. I want to see Willie Zalatoris get a major. I think he's close. I think that could happen. So we'll see, man. It's, it's going to be fun. The last golf thing I have for you, Josh, and I asked this to, to another guest on the show, but, you know, in light of the uh, Stall, the uh, Scott Stallings uh, mistaken identity case, how long, could, how long could you ask if there was another Josh Wynn? You know, how long could you fool people at the Masters? Like the oh, my first goodness. Hole? I at least would have reached out to them and said, hey, I got this by mistake, but can I swing by and at least play, play a round or something? you got to have to work that. And that guy played it so well. That was really, really great. Yeah. Uh, I, love, I love Scott like, saying, he's like, I was going to the mailbox five times a day, and I get some That's random funny. DM that uh, says, hey, I think I got your invitation. But uh, no, that, that, that I'm glad that, <laughs> that that kicking him out last week. It was a, it was a good you know, moment of uh, levity for, for all of golf and just takes people's minds off this, this uh, X versus Y here. Certainly was. Uh, Josh Wynn, always a blast chatting with you. Uh, very last thing. I mean, I got to add it because, you know, it's a historic thing. But how about Donovan Mitchell becoming the third player in this century to get over 70 points? Pretty remarkable, uh, you know. Kobe and Devin added. Booker, that's it. Yep. yep. Phenomenal. And uh, uh, I, I think good things are ahead for the Cavs. And, and I think it would be great to, you know, well, we can pass over the uh, LeBron years, but to bring back some glory to 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 Cleveland and the team that they want to root for. Like going back to Mark Price and Brad Doherty and Craig Elo and, and the awesome teams they had in the 80s that, that fought so hard against Jordan in, in those early days um, with the bad boys and stuff. But um, it, pretty awesome to see uh, – NBA here in Dallas is, you know, they're always pumped up with um, Luca and what he's doing here. And he's had a pretty spectacular round of late. Um, but, uh, but yeah, pretty special times and uh, uh, always a, a great scene. I love to see history be made. And I need to ask you a question now, if I can, okay. if I can flip the page, Go right ahead. Uh, where are we going? Uh, what are we thinking with AO? I mean, it's incredibly, thankfully the, the, uh, the powers that be allowed Djokovic into the country this year. And he's been warmly received so far in Adelaide. Um, but you know, they, they stole one from him last year. If yeah. you want to say it that bluntly and, and he would have 22 already. So the image, him and Nadal will be tied. So um, I, I really hope that there's not a lot of negativity around this. And um, you know, with each passing day, I, I think we get Joker's corner because he made a stand about his body and not wanting to, you know, get this, vaccination but um he was really blasted i mean you know you're in this every single day talking about tennis but he was really um 
not looked upon favorably by I think the world, at least 80% or 85% of them last year for, mm-hmm. for not doing this and, and the way he handled the, um, the interview with the French uh, reporter in Serbia before and that he had potentially had COVID, whatever. But what do you think about, about his chances in Australia and, can he yeah. can he get the the tie with Rafa? I'll I'll try to keep this brief. Uh, you know, Rafa <laughs> won the Australian Open last year, so that kind of flipped it. I it know. Twenty two, twenty one, the other way. Um, yep. And I also want to just add that he's still not allowed to come to America, so that has been yeah. extended past Miami. So that's two thousand ranking points out the window. Don't want to get into that, but a lot of great talent, a lot of great players. Alcaraz is number one. Kyrgios is engaged, all that stuff. I think 2023 is setting up for the Novak Djokovic revenge tour. And I think it's going to start in Australia. He's won 31, I think now, straight matches in Australia, dating back to when he was allowed to play. I think he's motivated. He finished the year in the top, like, five or six, only playing a handful of events, won the year-end championships. I I think it's gearing up for a classic Novak Djokovic year. And I think the fact that he is so positive now has helped him. Because he mentioned it. It's hard to stay positive when something like that happens to you, when you feel like something's taken away from you. And I think a lot of people would have just completely unraveled, understandably so. But, yeah, I think he's a top dog until proven otherwise. Until he's beaten on that court, I'm not picking against him. I know it's happened Heck a few no, times. He's, but, getting, the, he's yeah. getting number 10, Mitch, no yeah. doubt. Mm-hmm. And um, number 10 on a hard court is a little different than 14 for Nadal on clay. So, um, it's yeah. very difficult to yeah. when everybody grew up on hard courts. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it uh, should be a fun couple of weeks. You know, uh, uh, I'll miss those late nights uh, <laughs> yeah. at the uh, expo w- with the team, but uh, but I'll be watching and uh, it should be fun. It's always a great way to kick off the year right off the bat with a major. I can't wait for it. Uh, Josh Wynn, you've been gracious with your time as always. Appreciate you coming on the Money Mitch Effect. We'll uh, have to do this again soon, but appreciate talking sports with you. Can't wait, Mitch. Happy New Year to a great 2023, man. Thanks to Kent Brown. Thanks to Josh Whitten. And thanks to everybody out there for listening to this episode of The Money Mitch Effect, the first of 2023. The entire podcast catalog can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, where all your podcasts are found. We're on all platforms, just about all platforms. And follow me on Twitter at MoneyMitchM21 and check out the Money Mitch Effect Facebook page. More good content coming in the year and years, hopefully, to come. We've got more to discuss next week, recapping the college football title game, week 18 of the NFL, hockey and basketball rage on, and uh, you never know. Australia starting. we got golf coming up, baseball offseason, Wrestle Kingdom took place. I'm, I'm rambling now, but there's a lot to discuss, and we'll have it all for you on this podcast. This is the Money Mitch Effect. My name is Mitch Michaels. Thank you for listening and keep enjoying sports.